1: and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Before we get started today, we want to talk about two trips, not just the one trip that we've been talking about, which is to Paris, June 2nd through 9th. And if you are listening to this podcast on the day that it comes out, uh, there are just a few days left to sign up for that trip and only a few spaces left um, as of right now, when we are recording, there are six seats left on the trip. That is from June 2nd to 9th, 2019, to Paris, France. It's going to be so much
0: fun! I cannot wait.
1: I am very excited about it. I don't know if I sound that excited <laughs> in my voice, but my body is vibrating with excitement. And then also, we have another show that we would like to tell people about. Uh, when Holly and I toured last year um, with our with our live shows. We had a few folks ask us if we could come to a place that doesn't have the word coast in the name, and we are also going to do that on July 17th, 2019. We will be in Indianapolis, Indiana, as part of the kickoff for the Midwestern Roots Conference.
0: Yeah, that's going to be a really fun time. I haven't been back to Indianapolis in a long time, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and we're going to have some, some
1: fun time uh, with listeners who want to come and hang out. Yeah. So if you want to find out more about the Paris trip, come to our website, which is com. There is a link up at the top of the page that says Paris trip exclamation point. And then the Midwestern Roots show is going to be under the link that says live shows, which is also where we will be keeping all the information about any other shows that we're going to do this year, which there will be more. We have others that will be announced a little later as well. All right, Tracy, with that business out of the way, are you ready to uh, talk
0: about a little bit of history?
1: I sure am. Today, we have a listener request. It is from Aaron, who asked on Twitter about the 6,888th Central Postal Directory Battalion, also known as the 6888. That was part of the Women's Army Corps during World War II. And at first, I thought, we've told some stories that feel similar to this one. We have talked about the Women's Air Force service pilots and the women accepted for volunteer service from the United States. And we've talked about the 1st Russian Women's Battalion of Death and the Soviet Night Witches. And these have had some really common themes. They've been really focused on the 20th century during wartime and needing to recruit some women so that more men could go into combat and militaries really reluctantly or begrudgingly allowing these women as new recruits. Usually, the women in question have faced a lot of discrimination and just outright hostility from their male peers and their commanding officers, along with lots of questions about their character, both from the military and civilians alike. But even though it shares a lot of those same themes, the 6888 story is also really different. It has a lot of elements that we haven't really covered before. Although there were Black American nurses in Europe as well during World War II, the 6888 was the only battalion of Black women from the U.S. to serve in Europe during the war. And their work really illustrates how huge parts of wartime military service aren't directly connected to combat at all. In this case, it was making sure American personnel in Europe could get their mail So today, we're really going to focus on the parts of this story that we haven't talked as much about before. We're going to talk about why the U.S. Army needed an entire battalion to deal with a mail backlog, and we're going to talk about how the 6888 did it.
0: So delivering mail from the United States to a soldier deployed in Europe during World War II was a long, multi-step process that involved both the U.S. Postal Service and the Army Postal System. So let's say Mary wanted to send a care package to her brother Henry. She would box it up and address it using his name, serial number, and unit, along with the Army Post Office, or APO, assigned to it. And she would send it care of a U.S. Postmaster. Mail bound for Europe was usually sent care of the postmaster in New York, New York, since that was its embarkation point.
1: The mail has continued to work basically that way for a really long time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have I have sent
0: packages to family. Uh, as people know, I grew up in a military family and friends as an adult. And similarly, there is a very very parallel situation going on still.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, there's usually still the 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 military tends to know. Basically, where people are, their families a lot of times don't. So it's usually still this process of an APO, sending it in care of a particular place. In New York, Mary's package would be sorted at a USPS concentration center, and then that would be handed off to the Army, and it would travel to Europe by sea because carrying civilian packages by air was just way too expensive, and that cargo space was a lot more needed for the war effort. Letters, on the other hand, could go by air thanks to a thing called Vmail that was introduced in 1942. Vmail let people write letters on special paper, and then those would be transferred onto microfilm for transport overseas by air, and then the letters would be printed out again on the other side of the journey.
0: So once in Europe, Mary's theoretical package would move through the Army postal system until reaching the APO on the address label. And then a mail clerk was responsible for getting the mail from the APO to the soldier. The APO was usually at the unit's headquarters. So if Henry was on duty somewhere miles away from
1: headquarters, Mary's
0: package should still get to him.
1: And within the Army's postal system, each person had an address card that was kept on file at the directory service. So if a person moved, they were responsible for filling out and submitting a change of address. Often, if a unit was moving repeatedly, somebody within that unit was responsible for submitting everyone's changes.
0: When mail arrived in Europe from the U.S., the Postal Division would try to deliver it as addressed. But if the address was wrong for whatever reason, the parcel went to the Directory Service. And the Directory Service had an address card on file for each person, which was supposed to be updated any time that person moved. The Directory Service would use these cards to try to track down the recipient. During the search, each person who handled the piece of mail initialed it and
1: dated it, and if no one had
0: been able to deliver it after 30 days, it was returned to sender.
1: So the fact that any of this worked at all seems almost miraculous to me. Even during peacetime, there was just a lot that could go wrong in a system like this. And during a war, there was even more potential for packages to become undeliverable or for the address cards at the directory service to be out of date. Plus, the scale of this entire operation was huge. In 1941, there were just a few thousand American service members in Europe, but by 1945, there were an estimated 7 million Americans in the European theater of operations. This included members of the military, along with civilian specialists, nurses, Red Cross volunteers, elected officials conducting tours and inspections. It just went on and on. The Army was handling most of this mail,
0: to make things more complicated, when you have that many people, a lot of them are going to have the same name. Just as one example, more than 7,000 Americans in the European theater were named Robert Smith having nothing to do with the cure. And of those Robert Smiths, some might be known to loved ones as Bob or Bobby or Robbie or Bert or some other nickname, and their mail might be addressed with that nickname instead of to Robert. It also occurs to me that I am related to a person whose name is actually Bobby, and if someone tried to (laughs) backwards engineer it to Robert, he would never get his mail. (laughs)
1: That would be wrong. So loved ones back home also weren't always meticulous about addressing their packages. Our hypothetical Mary was, but it really wasn't unheard of for mail to be addressed along the lines of junior U.S. Army. So it wasn't always just about figuring out where this Robert Smith was stationed now after his package came back to the directory service as undeliverable. It was also about figuring out which Robert Smith we were even talking about or figuring out who in the world this junior might be and where junior's mail should go. The directory services records included service members' serial numbers to help keep them all straight, but there could still be a lot of duplicate names to have to go through. In
0: spite of all of these challenges, in the early years of the United States' involvement in the war, the mail had continued to get through in Europe most of the time. It might take a while, but people were still getting their letters and packages from home, eventually. But soon, this system was becoming overloaded. To try to reduce the volume of mail, the Postmaster General ordered in 1943 that packages could only be sent to APOs in response to a soldier's specific request.
1: Yeah, it's not clear how much this was really enforced or even enforceable. Sometimes people would send their package, like, with the letter they had gotten saying, please send me some new underwear, in there <laughs> as sort of <laughs> insurance that this really was requested. Uh, regardless, though, I mean, that it didn't do enough to cut down on the volume of mail that needed to be handled. And then, in preparation for the D Day invasion of June 6th, 1944, the number of US troops in Europe started growing dramatically. And these troops and their mail were just moving around a lot more in a region that was increasingly chaotic and dangerous. By late
0: 1944, the situation was critical. The Battle of the Bulge started on December 16th of that year and lasted for more than a month. And just during that battle, six airplane hangers full of mail were returned from the European continent to England as undeliverable. These packages weren't sent all the way back to North America. They just waited in a warehouse. And because of the timing, a lot of those returned packages were Christmas presents.
1: All those packages became part of a huge backlog of undelivered mail just sitting in warehouses in England. Eventually, there were packages in this backlog that had been lingering for more than two years.
0: On top of the overall shortage in labor for mail delivery, the military had been putting a lot more focus on moving things like food and war materiel, which did seem more critical than personal mail. But as this backlog of undelivered mail grew and grew, it became clear that personal mail was also critical. Naturally, people wanted to hear from their loved ones. People eagerly or anxiously awaited news about the births of children or a loved one's surgery or all kinds of other events in the lives of the people that they missed back home.
1: On top of that, most of the troops serving in Europe had been drafted, and many of them were as young as 18 or 19 years old, Some of them had never left their home state or been separated from their families for such a length of time. So a lot of them had even more reason to be homesick and just in need of contact with people from home.
0: In other words, these people genuinely needed their mail. When the mail slowed down or stopped, the troops' morale suffered, and that drop had the potential to reduce their overall effectiveness.
1: In late 1944, the U.S. Army decided to handle this backlog of mail by creating a special battalion devoted specifically to addressing it. And we will get to them after a sponsor break.
0: So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C. Or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
1: As we said at the top of the show, the 6888 was part of the Women's Army Corps. And the Women's Army Corps was initially created in 1942 as the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. It was established, quote, "...for the purpose of making available to the national defense the knowledge, skill, and special training of women of the nation." Its first director was Ovita Hobby.
0: The Auxiliary Corps was a non-combat voluntary corps. It had its own training center with its own officer-candidate school, where officer-candidates of different races all trained together. Once they were through training, though, the individual units were racially segregated... There were also individual recruiters who refused to take applications from Black women, either because of their own racism or because they mistakenly believed that Black women weren't allowed.
1: As its name suggests, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps wasn't considered to be fully part of the U.S. Army. At first, women only worked stateside. They were mainly doing clerical and food service work, along with driving and operating radios and switchboards. They also did some medical work, although the Army Nurse Corps was a whole separate entity.
0: Being an auxiliary unit also meant that the women weren't eligible for overseas pay or government-issued life insurance. So when some of them were sent to North Africa in late 1942, it was without the corresponding increase in their pay and without that insurance.
1: That changed when the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps became the Women's Army Corps, or WAC, which was formerly part of the U.S. Army. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the legislation to make this change on July 1, 1943. The WAC gained official military status, including being eligible for insurance and overseas pay. The Women's Army
0: Corps went on to recruit women from every U.S. state and from American territories, including Puerto Rico. Later on, several Nisei women joined the WAC as well. And you can learn more about the complicated history of Nisei service in the U.S. Armed Forces during World War II in our episodes on Executive Order 9066 and in the ones specifically on Nisei in World War II.
1: Starting with that first deployment to North Africa in 1942, the women sent overseas through the Auxiliary Corps or the WACs had all been white. But the War Department had also briefly issued a request to send Black women overseas in 1942 as well. However, that request was really contentious because part of it was that these women would, quote, provide companionship for thousands of Negro troops. The Auxiliary
0: Corps' leadership was appalled and angry at this suggestion, which was, on its own, offensive. On top of that, they'd had to continually push back against perceptions that there was something morally questionable about these women and their service. Suggesting that the military wanted to send black women overseas as companions just reinforced those perceptions. Ovita Kolphabi refused to allow it, and the War Department walked back its request and stated that black women would be sent overseas only if their presence was deemed a necessity. That led to an ongoing campaign by civil rights activists, Black journalists, and advocates like Mary McLeod Bethune, who argued that the Black women should have the same opportunity as the white women to serve in the roles that they had been trained for.
1: Yeah, and when we say that they had been having to push back against perceptions that there was something morally questionable, these included things like false news reports about widespread pregnancies and STD outbreaks uh, among the whack which were just so heavily stigmatized and made it seem like there was something nefarious going on. And, like, this was something that they had actively been fighting against. And this this whole request reinforced that whole idea. In 1944, though, the War Department finally decided that it was a necessity to send a battalion of Black women to Europe, and that battalion was going to address that whole backlog of mail. This battalion was, of course, the 6 It was to be a self-contained battalion rather than being connected to a male unit, so it would be responsible for everything that was needed to do the job, including things like their own food service, their own administration, and their own recreation. Even though the higher-ups
0: knew what this unit's job would be, the women being recruited for it didn't at first. All they knew was that there was a chance to go overseas to serve, and a lot of women were eager to have that chance. At the same time, the overall number of black women in the WAC was still relatively small, and not all of them met the criteria to go to Europe, which included passing strict physical and psychological examinations, as well as undergoing additional training at Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia.
1: So it took a dedicated recruiting effort to fill out the 6888. It ultimately had 824 enlisted personnel and 31 officers. In command was Major Charity Edna Adams, who had been part of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps' first class of officers and was the first Black woman to be commissioned by the U.S. Army. Adams was a huge part of the 6888, and she's a good example of the kinds of skills and education that were needed for Black women to be considered as Black officers. Adams was from Columbia, South Carolina. She'd been valedictorian of her high school class and had gone on to graduate from Wilberforce University with majors in mathematics, physics, and Latin, along with a history minor and teacher certification.
0: She had gone back home to Columbia after graduation to work as a teacher. And during the summer, she took graduate courses at Ohio State University.
1: Adams joined the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in 1942 after the Dean of Women at Wilberforce recommended her, and she got a letter that invited her to join. When she was chosen to command the 6888, she already had years of experience as an officer working at the WAC Training Center in Fort Des Moines, Iowa. She joined the rest of the battalion for training at Fort Oglethorpe, which included classroom training, drilling, obstacle courses, evacuation drills, uh, gas mask drills, and the like. But even
0: as they were training, they still didn't know what they were being sent to Europe to do. Adams and her executive officer finally learned what their role would be after going to England ahead of the rest of the battalion in early 1945. The two of them flew over the Atlantic, and the first group of enlisted women and officers followed by sea aboard the Ile-de-France.
1: The Ile-de-France departed from New York on February 3rd, 1945, en route to Glasgow, Scotland, evading German U-boats along the way. And then from there, the women traveled by train to Birmingham, England, where they arrived on February 14th. The day after their arrival, they held a parade for Lieutenant General John C.H. Lee, who was the deputy commander of the European Theater of Operations. The rest of the 6888 arrived about 50 days after this first group did.
0: In Birmingham, the 6888's enlisted personnel were housed at King Edward School, and officers were in a couple of houses. They managed their own mess hall and recreational facilities and their own beauty salon. But setting up a beauty shop was something of a challenge, especially when it came to getting gas and electrical connections in proximity to the salon chairs that Adams requisitioned. In her memoir, Adams wrote, quote, It is perhaps wiser not to detail the extent of our ingenuity.
1: That beauty salon might seem like a luxury, but it was it was really a necessity, and not just because the women had to meet military grooming standards. It was also to keep up their own morale, because as it turned out, working through this backlog of mail it was was a really difficult job, and we will get to why after a sponsor break. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news.
0: Hi everybody, my name is Max Homa. And I'm
1: Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip" with Max Homa
0: and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover
1: media darling. You too could be a co-host of a podcast.
0: And that dream is now a reality Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour, and our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Homan and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homan and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The
1: 6888 got to work in a warehouse in Birmingham, England in February of 1945. And the temperatures there tended to be in the 30s to 40s Fahrenheit, which is in the single digits Celsius. The warehouses they were working in were not well-heated, so the women went to work every day in as many layers as they could manage, but they were still cold.
0: This sounds utterly miserable to me. Yeah. Uh, The warehouse also was not well-lit. Under normal conditions, its lighting would have been supplemented during the day by natural light from the windows. But those had to be covered over because of air raids. Plus, the 6888 worked three eight-hour shifts a day, seven days a week. So some of the women were in the warehouse sorting mail in the middle of the night, when there is no daylight to help anyway.
1: We mentioned earlier that the backlogged mail included a lot of Christmas parcels and some items that had been lingering in the mail system for years. Some of these packages contained perishable foods, which had spoiled... And even when what was inside was not spoiled, mice and rats and other vermin had really infested a lot of these packages as well.
0: And even in the best circumstances, overseas shipping can be hard on packages. The 6888 was often piecing together packages that had physically disintegrated after getting wet or otherwise being damaged or just simply being sent from North America and then around Europe without a sturdy enough container. These women got really good at figuring out which random items came out of the same broken package, using clues like fuzz from a sweater that had rubbed off on multiple items or comparing just how damp each item was. They would reconstruct these packages as well as they could before figuring out where the recipients were and then sending them on.
1: This backlog was expected to take the 6888 six months to deal with, but they cleared about 65,000 pieces of mail per shift, and they finished what they were doing in half the expected time. This included resolving all of those discrepancies that we talked about at the top of the show and getting the mail to the right people, as well as the much sadder task of returning packages to the sender when the person who was supposed to receive them had been killed.
0: Beyond just the task of sorting the mail,
1: life in Birmingham had some
0: challenges for the 6888. Locals probably would have been curious about any U.S. Army activity at the warehouse, but when it came to the sudden presence of more than 800 Black women, first, there was a lot of gawking. The 6888 was also the largest unit in the area, so when there was some kind of function that required an Army officer's presence, Major Adams was usually the one to go. People were often shocked when the officer who arrived at an official function was a Black woman.
1: The 6888 also faced discrimination in some of the amenities that were available to other members of the service. The American Red Cross was running a club for enlisted personnel that had allowed white women and men of any race, but then decided without really offering an explanation that the 6888's enlisted members would not be admitted there. The Red Cross offered to establish a separate club just for the 6888, but Major Adams refused, saying that she wouldn't have her battalion moving into this segregated facility.
0: A similar incident followed with a Red Cross hotel in London for wax that the 6888 had been allowed to use when they were there on official or personal business. Again, without really giving much of an explanation, the Red Cross decided that the 6888 would just be quote, happier somewhere else and started setting up a separate facility. Adams again refused. And when she let the 6888 know that they would need to find other accommodations when they went to London, overall, they backed her up on it.
1: Yeah, she uh, when she was talking to the, the Red Cross people about this, she was like, okay, we've been sharing this hotel. There have been no problems. None of my people have complained. It seems like maybe some other people have complained. And if they have they are maybe the people that should go to some separate facility? Uh, Anyway, none of it was a good situation. There were also some disagreements with higher-ups. Even though the 6888 was well ahead of schedule, and they finished processing this big backlog in half the expected time, they were still criticized for being inefficient, something that was probably more about racial bias than their actual performance. There's definitely not another explanation that's readily there for that.
0: No, you performed high above, exceeding all expectations? So lazy. I know, (laughs) I can't imagine another reason for it. Major Adams in particular also had a run-in with a general who came for an inspection. According to her memoir, Adams had been ordered to maintain business as usual during that inspection. But when the general inspected her troops, he reprimanded her for not having all of them present. When she explained that some were sleeping and others were working and that she was following orders by keeping them on their set schedule, he said that he would bring a white first lieutenant to take command. Major Adams' response in the heat of the moment was, "'Over my dead body, sir!'
1: This was, of course, not an acceptable thing for any officer to say to their superior. And so after the general left, Adams and some of her officers had to put their heads together to figure out how she might be able to defend herself in what seemed like an inevitable court-martial. The strategy they decided on was to lean on some memos that had advised officers that were affiliated with the U.S. military not to use language that emphasized racial segregation out of the risk of alienating their allies in Europe. Adams was prepared to make the argument that what the general said had done exactly that. But then the charges against her were dropped on the grounds that it would be too expensive to replace her because she was the WAC's highest-ranking Black officer.
0: I just want to point out, she said sir at the end. So (laughs) by my estimation, that was very polite.
1: And in some retellings of this, she said sir at both ends. See?
0: Super polite, better than I would have done. Once the Birmingham backlog was clear, the 6888 was moved to Rouen, France, in the Normandy region on June 9, 1945, to do the same job there. Of course, that was a month after VE Day, so a lot of U.S. troops were headed back home. A lot of supplies were as well. The 6888's beds could not be found, and they had to cobble together bunk setups with boards and canvas cots.
1: The 6888 had a lot more visitors in Rouen than they'd had back in England. A lot of troops headed back home were being routed through the area, so the 6888 had a steady stream of male relatives and boyfriends and fiancés passing through, plus some servicemen who didn't know anybody there but wanted to socialize. This ultimately led to several weddings, either between sweethearts from back home who were reunited after the war here or relationships that developed while both parties were in Europe.
0: There were some downsides to all of these reunions, though. So many male visitors were coming through that Adams finally banned men from the facility every Monday, so the women of the 6888 had time to do things like launder and air dry their delicates in relative privacy. Occasionally, things got out of hand with some of the men, and the 6888 asked for its MPs to be issued firearms. When that request was refused, they just studied jiu-jitsu instead.
1: This wasn't the only way that life for the 6888 was different in Rouen than it had been in Birmingham. For a while, they had exceptionally good meals because a quartermaster assumed that a unit that had so many women in it had to be a hospital, So they were being sent hospital rations, which were much nicer. Once that error was discovered and they went back to their regular rations, they started bartering damaged goods that came through like cigarettes and soap with the locals to increase their access to fresher foods. They also increasingly worked with civilians and sometimes prisoners of war as members of the 6888 became eligible to go home. They
0: had more opportunities for recreation in Rouen as well, including participating in sports and athletic tournaments. They still didn't have equal access because of their race, though. Several members of the 6888 were selected for an Army all-star team, but their invitations were rescinded when the organizers realized they were Black. The battalion's basketball team was also denied boarding a train for a basketball tournament at which point Lieutenant General Lee had the train held until his personal first-class car could be connected for them to use.
1: And they held another parade in Rouen. This one honored Joan of Arc and passed through the square where she had been burned at the stake.
0: It was in Rouen that the 6888 had its biggest tragedy. Three women were in a Jeep accident on July 8, 1945. Private Mary J. Barlow and Private Mary H. Bankston were killed, and Sergeant Dolores M. Brown died five days later as a result of her injuries. Major Adams notified their families, and women of the 6888 who had mortuary experience prepared their bodies for burial. They held two services, since two of the women had been Protestant and the other was Catholic. All three were buried at Normandy American Cemetery.
1: In Rouen. once again, the 6888 dealt with another projected six-month mail backlog in half the estimated time. And then after that, the remaining women were sent to Paris to deal with one last backlog. They arrived there in October of 1945. This time, they were housed in hotels where they had housekeeping and meal service. By this point, about 300 members of the 6888 had gone home and 200 more were eligible to. So even though there were far fewer Americans in Europe, for the people who were still there, their workloads were actually higher.
0: Another issue in these last months of their assignment was theft of the mail that they were trying to sort. Many of the people living in the area where they were working had faced all kinds of shortages during the war, and they still didn't have basic necessities. So the remaining members of the 6888 had to add tracking down pilfered packages to their duties.
1: In February of 1946, with the war over and the backlogs handled, the 6888 was disbanded, and any members who were still in Europe were sent home. Before departing for home, Adams also ran into that general who had tried to court-martial her over telling him, over my dead body, back in Birmingham. According to Adams' memoir, they'd actually crossed paths a couple of times since then, and on his way to the, back to the United States, he told her that she had outsmarted him and that he was proud to know her. And also that he wouldn't be telling her any of this if he thought he would ever see her again.
0: Adams was the most senior female officer on the troop transport ship that she took back to the U.S., which meant that she was in command of all of the women on board. A group of white nurses objected to this, saying that they had their own white major, who they argued should be in charge. Adams explained to them that she would not be leaving the ship, but that if it was so important to them to be under the command of a white officer, they were welcome to disembark and go home later. They elected not to do so.
1: After the war, many of the 6888 used the GI Bill to go to college or graduate school. And this included Major Adams, who was promoted to lieutenant colonel before leaving the service. That was the highest rank that it was possible for her to attain in the Women's Army Corps. She also got married on August 24, 1949, becoming Charity Edna Adams Early.
0: During their time in Europe, the 6888 had broken records for processing mail. In spite of the early criticisms of their alleged inefficiency, in the end, they were highly praised for their work. But they returned home with no recognition or fanfare. That didn't really start to change until 1981, when several members went back to Birmingham, England, to be recognized. A memorial was held at Arlington National Cemetery in February of 2009, but by then the organizers were only able to contact three surviving members to attend.
1: In March of 2016, the U.S. Army Women's Foundation inducted the 688 into its Hall of Fame. And in 2018, the U.S. Senate passed Resolution 412, quote, expressing the sense of the Senate regarding the 6,888 Central Postal Directory Battalion and celebrating Black History Month, it was introduced in February and passed in October. On November 30th of that year, the 6,888 Central Postal Directory Battalion Monument at the Buffalo Soldier Mo- Monument Park at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, was dedicated.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams Early died on January 13th, 2002, at the age of 83. Before her death, she wrote a memoir called One Woman's Army, and it has a lot more detail about the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps and the Women's Army Corps in general, and the 6888 specifically, and it is well worth checking out.
1: In this memoir, she wrote, quote, I was very proud of the 6888. My personal pride was because I was the commanding officer of this terrific outfit. There were many women in the Corps who could have been the CO, but I was the fortunate one to hold the position. My feeling of personal achievement was only a minute part of my pride in the unit. The women of the 6888 had ventured into a service area where they were not really wanted. They had assumed jobs that had normally been assigned to men. They had been and were performing in a valiant and praiseworthy manner. They had survived racial prejudice and discrimination with dignity." I
0: really love them. Yeah. It's such a great story. do you have a little bit of
1: listener mail to finish off with? I do. It is from Aaron. And as far as I know, it is from a different Aaron than the one who requested this topic today. And Aaron says, hello, Holly and Tracy. I love listening to you guys. I just listened to your Alexandra Dumas episodes. I hope your itinerary in France will bring you to Montmartre Cemetery. It's one of my favorite memories in Paris. And there are many famous people buried there. You can even see a Dumas, son of the one buried at the Pantheon. My other incredible experience was going for a concert at Sunset at Saint-Chapelle. I would tell anyone going to Paris, if you get the chance to do this, don't miss it. So much of sightseeing is among milling crowds with so many distractions and cramped for time. This was a fairly small concert for which they limit the number of people, and you get to experience the cathedral in such a magical way, listening to the music in those acoustics with all that time to just drink in the glow of the sun through stained glass. Anyway, I know you guys probably have a full schedule and lots of people weighing in on what to do, but I think you would really enjoy those experiences, so I thought I'd share. Thank you for all you do, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron, for this email. Uh, I wanted to read it not just because it's about Paris, uh, but also because we did not really talk much at all about Alexandre Dumas' feast in those two episodes about the father and son Dumas pair, uh, we may at some point return to him to talk about him more because he has his own fascinating life story, uh, including the fact that his his father uh, had like the French law on his side in terms of who got custody of him when he was little. Like there's a whole lot to talk about there uh, that we may return to at some point in the future. So it gives me a chance to kind of nod to it today. So thank you, Aaron, for this note. And also for the beautiful picture that was attached to it. Yeah, uh, That has the picture of his tomb of Alexander Dumas' tomb in the cemetery, uh, which is very striking.
0: And it is not very far from where we are actually staying, so we could hoof it over there no problem.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, not, not far at all. So... If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to find a searchable archive of all the episodes we have ever worked on and to find show notes for the episodes Holly and I have worked on together. That's also where you can find information about that trip to Paris and our upcoming show in Indianapolis. And so you can, in addition to all of that, subscribe to our show in Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.